0: The title of the message this morning is The Song of God's People. I invite you to follow along with me in the reading of the Word of God, although you will remain silent, um, you can remain seated as well. We will revere the Word of God in our hearts, if not our posture. Please follow along with me as I read on Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There, thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers' and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. May God add to the reading of his word his blessings. Would you pray with me this morning as we go into the word? My heavenly Father, our eyes have not looked upon something so pure and holy as the word of God. And so... We set aside our affections and our attention to behold something from another world, this wonderful word. And as you reveal your son to us this morning, may he be ever more beautiful to us. Certainly you have described him to be the one who has revealed everything that you wanted us to know about him, about you. So let us behold Christ together as brothers and sisters in the Lord. And our heart's prayer also is that if there is some who has not set their eye upon Jesus this morning, we pray that you would open their eyes and let them behold him and find him to be everything that you have described him to be, but especially the perfect deliverer, the great God and savior of our sins. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. The topic that we're going to enjoy in the text today is something that sets us apart as human beings from really the rest of all creation, both great and small. Near and far in all of the universe, we are distinct beings. It's the topic of worship. The psalmist does say the heavens declare the glory of God and the earth shows forth his handiwork, but we have been set aside as creatures who uniquely and distinctly are able to behold our God and have a relationship with him and worship him is this topic that we find ourselves in here this morning, that God created us as spiritual beings, and spiritual beings, we crave worship. And then we only find that passion, that worship being fulfilled in worshiping him really is a marvelous wonder. And if you're here today and you're a child of God, you know what it's like to feel a fulfillment in worshiping God and yet still not feel fulfilled, to know that there's more of him to adore, more of him to magnify, more of him to discover and rediscover. The act of worship carries us transcendently beyond this mere temporal world, the brokenness and the fallenness of the creation around us. And the act of worship truly transcends us unto the very presence of God. What a truly, in every sense of the word, awesome experience is it to worship God to behold someone greater than ourselves and to find in every part of our inspection of God to find nothing lacking, to find every part of him, to find every, every feature of him, every part of his character perfect and whole and attractive. When Christ redeems the human heart, he sets a fire, a blaze of worship that had been squelched by the fallen human condition Jesus and the Holy Spirit ignite what was set apart with a kindling of his breathing, of his own breath into the fire of grace and brings out a fire that warms and lights and a fire that reveals. But our blessed Savior doesn't just do that for one of us. Not just for one of his image bearers, but he has brought life to countless and to the extent that Revelation 22 images for us, that it is like an ocean of redeemed worshipers who without any inhibition or limitation whatsoever exult in the God of heaven. God has always been interested in the numbers. He created Adam, and then he created Eve, And then he gave them the command to multiply and to fill this earth, to literally fill the earth with their offspring. But even saying that isn't fair. From our vantage point, God has been beyond the numbers. He isn't just about the numbers. He is even beyond the numbers. And there's really an immeasurable host of saints who God gathers unto himself, of which there are a number here, but really an immeasurable host of saints that God gathers to himself and by his, his precious mercy today is continuing to gather unto himself. As the gospel is proclaimed in pulpits and in homes and in villages all around the world, he is gathering a host of people to himself. But when God set apart for himself in the ancient days a people, he set apart a family of Abraham that we came, we came to know as the 12 tribes of Israel. And each tribe had its own head, and they had their own families, and they had their own culture, and they had their own lingo, and they had their own territories, and they had their own colors on their flags, and they had their own synagogues, and they had their own micro-traditions. But each tribe has, had its own growing history, even within the larger history of the nation of Israel. So what was the unity of these vastly different tribes based upon? What was the unity based upon? Was the unity of God's people as we find them coming together to assemble in Jerusalem was it based upon their geography? Was it based upon their history? Was it in their preferences? Was it in their traditions? What was the basis of their unity? Well, Psalm 122 shows us the answer. In verse number 1, we are going to the house of the Lord. The worship of the Lord was that firstly bonded them together. Their worship of the Lord firstly bonded them together. And that is the bond that arrests the heart of all the people of God. Ephesians 4 reminds us that we are one as the children of God. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So today, let's walk with the worshiper. And let's do so gladly, as he's invited us to be invited into that journey. Let's walk with this worshiper in the Song of Ascent looking around at the people that God has assembled this morning and hearing them as you have heard this robust worship this morning but not only looking around but let's also look upward and see if we can see what they saw the great God so there's three truths this morning that we'll be looking at in Psalm 122 and the first one is that the Lord himself is the great temple the Lord himself is the great temple Now this is a section of Psalms from Psalm 120 to Psalm 135 that is called the Songs of Ascent. Likely in your Bibles you have that sort of as an italic subtitle. This is the third of the Songs of Ascent. It starts in 120, is 122. Songs of Ascent, what does that mean? It does picture for us something figurative that we're we're transcending, we're ascending unto God to worship him, we're coming up to the throne of God, if that's what it is, certainly a picture. But it's a Song of Ascent as... The people of God would come to Jerusalem three times a year, at least three times, but specifically three times a year for feasts in Jerusalem that they would need to attend. And when they would leave their homes, typically the father, the the head of the family, the family would, would go through the villages, and as they would travel, they would have, if you would think of it this way, sort of family devotions. They'd be reciting the Psalms. And as they were anticipating, really meeting together with God and, and seeing God's people unified around the temple and beholding the priests and all that he stood for, for them before God, and, 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 and really looking unto God in the temple, they would recite these 16 psalms as they would move along from wherever they were in Israel. So they were called the songs of ascent because in Jerusalem, as you know, Jerusalem is a high point of the land. It stands above an elevation, the rest of the land, but it also is that figurative picture of we're going up to the temple. No matter where you were, you're going up to the temple. Even if you're above the temple, if you could be in an airplane, you would still say you're going up to the temple. So it's a song of ascent. And so we've been invited to go with them on this journey. Well we notice in this passage that As he is invited to go to worship, he says that he is glad. Another version of the scripture translation says he leaped for joy at the idea of assembling with God's people before the Lord. And he was glad because worship is social. Worship is social. Worship is social in the sense that it is public. It is is corporate. He was glad that others were going to the house of the Lord. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And he was so glad to be with other people, uh, other believers. And you know, this reminds us that as believers, we're not individual worshiping agents. We are more than that. We are part of a whole. And you, believer, you sister and brother in Christ, you're part of the whole. We are not isolated worshipers. Let us go, and then our feet stand within the gates. Public worship, or as we had alluded to it as being social worship, is the giving of ourselves to the bigness of God. The giving of ourselves to the bigness of God and the broadness of his works across the lives of many people. It is a reminder that he is working on all of our lives and he is doing greater things than just in our own world, in our own castle, in our own kingdom. He's doing great and wondrous things in multiplied ways, in multiple people's lives, simultaneously for his own glory. And the bigness of worship, the assembly of of believers, the the leaving of our house, the leaving of our individuality and losing ourselves into the the ocean of worshipers is that reminder of the, the greatness of our God and the broadness of his grace. And the place where the redeemed are today is the church of Christ. The church gathered is where God has templed with his people. Often we find Paul alluding to Timothy, for example, that this is the household of God. Peter uses some of the same language. The, you're built up as living stones. And they, they're using some of that Old Testament imagery to say the church is is where God is templing with his people. And we are individually his temple. We learn from from Paul's admonition to the Corinthians that our temple is, the, our body is the temple. We are individually his temple, yes. But also, yes, the household of God cannot be thought of anything less than the temple of God. And together we come before our great high priest and we engage with his offering of right sacrifice and worship on our behalf. Together we acknowledge that not just I, but we are his people. And that is not just my, but he is our Lord. Our lord so he has drawn me into his covenant but he has also drawn me into this covenant to be in a covenant community he's drawn me into a covenant to be along with himself which is the pinnacle which is the essence of really human experience but he has drawn me together with others as well in gladness the psalmist says this and he is thrilled to worship with the people of god and by the way, he might not have felt like that before he had come. He had, might had a few uh, hard times getting the children in the car. On the camel. He might have had some things going on. He might not have even had coffee yet. He might not have been feeling that great. And he brought himself to the house of the Lord. Because sometimes we need to remember that sometimes worship is a behavior that trains our feelings in the right way. Worship is a behavior that can train your feelings into the right paths. We depend all too often on our feelings, and that's not where faith lies. Really, it's it's not where the essence of truth is. Feelings are helpful in a number of ways, but when it comes to faith... Feelings are just really pitifully unreliable. It is the wisdom of God, in the wisdom of God, that God calls us to come and worship him, knowing that at times we will worship him when we don't feel like it. But in worship, he's training us and putting us in position to behold him. And when we behold God, he sets our feelings in their right order. He is the God of our faith, and and biblically, we could say he is the God of our feelings. He should lord and master over our feelings. He doesn't ask us to praise and thank him. He commands us to do so. Because he wants to nurture a right heart within us. That right heart... That worship, that nurturing of the right heart in us, it begins with obedience and it results in becoming re centered in reality. God is worthy of praise and he is worthy of the giving of thanks. And so, worship is the setting ourselves into the reality of what is true, even though everything we see doesn't look like what it's, it's true. It's the setting ourselves in the reality of what is true, even when the feelings that I have seems so true and so contradictory to everything that we know about God and his word. And there's nothing truer than that God is worthy of all of our praise. Augustine wrote, a Christian should be an Alleluia from head to foot. I love that because it typifies this spirit of the worshiper. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your great gates. O Jerusalem, what unites these 12 tribes is more than their blood, the blood of Abraham. What unites these 12 tribes is when they seek after God. Worship isn't what united them. By the way, that's a principle for you to explore, but worship isn't what united them. It wasn't the act of worshiping together. It was that that they were all worshiping God that united them in spirit and in truth. Often corporate worship is seen as a magic pill among, among the people of faith, a magic pill for unification or a unifier. But when God is worshiped as a means to an end, that isn't at all what is meant, what is true biblical unity. When God is worshipped, when he is pursued, listen, unity is a fruit. And it's a fruit that comes in season. God isn't someone to be used to pursue oneness. He is to be pursued, and then in him is found unity and peace. As in all the blessed gifts of grace, God has designed his gifting of graces in such a way that none of the gifts of grace are given without him. Without him. It is him that is the gift. Do you believe that? I think the easier bottom line in in much of our culture and sometimes even in our Christian culture is to seek after the blessing of or the blessings of God, and not seek after God. But God cannot give his gifts apart from himself. And that's our hope, isn't it? You don't want the gifts without God. The world has gifts of kindness and grace of God as he Lingers and tarries in his mercy, but they do not have God. You see, in the God centeredness of life, no gift of grace is without his presence. Grace isn't impersonal, unity isn't impersonal either. When the worshipers behold the great city of Jerusalem as they're ascending unto the mount there with its triad of walls, there was three layers of these thick walls safely enveloping them. It reminded them that they were safe in in the sense that God was their provider and as long as the temple was there and as long as Jerusalem stood, uh, this was the place of God's promised protection and his provision. It was the symbol of his covenant with them when they saw Jerusalem as a whole, they saw the place where God resides. To them, the Jerusalem and and the temple in this way are sort of synonymous. Don't think of one without the other. I was glad when they said, let us go to the house of the Lord and go into Jerusalem. They see a place that's solid and fitted together. Notice our feet have been standing in the gates. Verse number three, Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up the stone upon stone without any separateness. The established buildings and the temple courts and pillars speak of not only the grandeur but the greatness of God. It also speaks of how tightly fit these 12 tribes were together in the covenant of the Lord. So the buildings represented this this unity and this inseparableness so too, as the 12 tribes came from all the regions of Israel and ascended into Jerusalem to worship God in those days, they were, they were noticing that Jerusalem was the picture of God's intent for his people, that they would, they would be united. Nothing would divide them as they were pursuing him. They were fitted together tightly, bound inseparably. So too, we're reminding in the, the People of Providence, in Matthew 24, Jesus said to the disciples, the temple would be destroyed, not stone upon stone would be resting upon each other. And this was just unthinkable in their mind, these tightly fitted and just carefully crafted pieces of their symbols of worship. So too, these 12 tribes were ascending and seeing, this is like God intends for us to be. Bound upon, and so, bound soundly upon the rock of God himself. They were fitted jointly together, and they, they realized the nearness that they had to one another and the inseparableness and the design of the inseparableness of the brothers. They are built upon the Lord and bound together in him too. And so they behold the buildings, but it wasn't like some sort of magnificent thing. It was recognizing these symbols of God's covenant community and his templing together with them. Verse 3 is clearly an illusion of the nature of the unity of Israel illustrated by the architecture and the engineering and the materials of the majestic capital of the covenant people. But The worship of the Lord is, is bigger than them. And I think that's coming through the heart of the worshiper here too. The worship of the Lord is bigger than him. He's, it's worship of the Lord is bigger than the 12 tribes. It's so certainly not without them. They were glad to be in his presence among his people. But when we come, when we come with God's people to the Lord, we come to the temple, the place where the gospel is beautifully displayed like the temple in Israel's day, the courts of gathering, the altar of sacrifice, the priestly functions, and the altar of prayers, the Ark of the Covenant, all are found now in the work and person of our blessed Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Not in gray walls and lights and projectors. But now in all the fixtures that we need to worship God, we find in them not just a fixture and not just a picture, but we find the person that it was always ever about in the first place. We come to the person, Jesus Christ, together. The church the church isn't the temple, but God is in Christ. And when the people of God gather before him, they bring him the tellings of their praise and thanksgiving. I have a feeling that some of your singing and worship this morning has been has been ignited and has been in telling the story of God's faithfulness over the past six days since you were gathered with the people. I have a feeling that some of the robustness and some of the quietness, sometimes some of the contemplation, some of the the tear that leaked out of the eye this morning as you as you just were rehearsing God's goodness for you framed in the song of of Christian writers and framed in the Spirit's pen in the Word of God as we recited Scripture together and confessed Christ is our only hope. When people of God gather together before him, they bring the tellings of their praise and thanksgiving. They come boasting in his goodness and greatness. Their worship is full of testimony of him. And so verse number four, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of Israel, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There the thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Worship set thing, sets things right through the word of God. Worship sets things right in our hearts. It puts things in order when it's centered on the word of God they're recognizing they're not their own tribe. Notice in verse number four, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of of the Lord. Now they've lost their identity. Not the tribe of Ephraim. Not the tribe of Judah. Not the tribe of Benjamin. But the tribes of the Lord. They are not their own tribe. And while the patriarchs had often acted of their own will, That was not the posture of Israel as a whole. By the 12 tribes, each ascending the hill of Zion together, they were testifying that they were the Lord's tribes. And when you left your home today, and when you assembled in here today, you came before the God, and one of the testimonies that was in our presence this morning is, God, we are are yours. And we're not the world's, and we're not our own. And we're not tribes. We're yours. We're of the Lord. And this was the testimony and this was the truth that was driving you this morning here to worship each one tribe of the Lord and together a nation of the Lord. Their attention is directed, notice, towards the decisions of the Lord. There the thrones of judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. There in Jerusalem, the judges of the land would set the, the righteous free and they would bind the offender. This is where the courts of the land were It seems out of place for us to think, what does judicial things have to do with worship and the experience of coming to church past the police station or past the courtroom? But you see, oh, how the righteous love the thrones of David in Jerusalem, for it was there where they were vindicated and justified. You see, the righteous love the judgments. The righteous love the judgments. Are you loving some judgments in our land today? A righteous one? We love the judgments when they're right. And so the judgments made from the thrones of Jerusalem were inseparable with their life lived out in righteousness. And we know what that's like. For some of the present issues that are at hand, you know, for example, in what we think is developing here with Roe versus Wade, the righteous are already rejoicing, although the formal verdict has not been made known, but the righteous are rejoicing, and we're glad for the thrones of judgment. And the thrones of judgment are where righteousness poured from the decrees, as it were, from the Lord in Jerusalem. And as these worshipers ascended Zion, they are not thinking of the judicial branch of government that executes the civil law, but they're pondering, listen, the right paths of God in his righteousness. And in Psalm 119, which just so so radically and so wonderfully and broadly describes the nature of God's word, listen as the psalmist uh, describes the righteous ways of God, the setting of right decisions through his word. Listen to the psalm as he writes in Psalm 119, verse 40. Behold, I long for your precepts in your righteousness, give me life. At midnight, verse 62, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. At midnight, I rise to, to praise you because of your righteous rules. And later in Psalm 119, 129, and following, your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me. As is your way with those who love your name, keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity dom- have dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts, make your face shine upon your servant and keep, and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Do you, believe or long for the right ways and the right decisions of the Lord? And you have the same heart as the psalmist here is crying, I ah, we love the thrones of David set in Jerusalem. They know that their hope is secured in the righteous ruling of God in their hearts. But the, word, the biblical word for judgment, verse number five, the thrones for judgment, the biblical word for judgment really just means the decisive word by which God straightens things out and puts things right. That's someone else's definition, not mine, but the, the, it is the decisive word by which God straightens things out and puts things right. And judgment is an action word. Judgment is an action word. It's all about force and power and movement. It makes things happen. Judgments are known as acts of mercy. They're known as acts of vindication. Judgments are known as acts of reconciliation and acts of retribution and acts of love and acts of putting right things in order. And God's people, as God's people, we love justice because its fruits are always reflective of God's holiness and the echoes of the greater hope when every path will be made right that is once crooked. Every small judgment in the land and every micro story happening in our lives where things, where we're vindicated and God's righteousness is made known is just a herald, a hobbinger of time to come. When everything will be set right. When God's people come together before him in worship, they take the word of God and they put it on a throne and they long to hear its decrees, even if it comes down on them. They pray it at the beginning of the worship service. They sing it, they read it, and they listen to it, and then they meditate on it, and then they, they socialize around it, they fellowship within it. And the word of God makes judgment upon the character of God's people, but it also gives decisiveness on the ways of his will. Aren't you thankful that God is clear in the way in which he desires to be worshipped? God is decisive. Decisive. The word of God brings liberty to that which was bound by injustice of sin and self. Listen as the psalmist in Psalm 119 again speaks of the word of God in its character. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. You see, when we gather as people around the judgments of God, around the decrees of God, bringing praise and thanksgiving, as was decreed as the people of the Lord, when the church takes the word of God and it breaks it open together, everyone is taken further than where they might have gone had they just been in the word by themselves. They come together under the decrees of God and are shaken loose from their own ignorance, their own individuality, their own idolatry. And they're brought into the fellowship around the throne under the hearing of the judgments of God. The word of God is transmitted into the context of their life. It's transmitted in a personal way. As people gather around the word of God, it's transmitted into a personal way. It's transmitted into a relational way, not an impersonal way. It's transmitted into a transformational way. And this is our prayer, our eager prayer before the service began. And as you, at church has been praying, as you would come to the mount this morning, you've been praying, God, God, don't let us leave here this, this morning the same as we behold your righteous decrees and as we hold, behold our Savior. Oh, please rescue me from myself and change me into the image of your dear Son. We want God to change us. And it is good that believers come apart from their homes so they can come together under the decrees of God. Like the tribes came into the gates of Jerusalem and sat under and praised the thrones of judgment that were set, so too the church comes under the decrees of God. Had they not ascended Zion together, they may have never experienced the blessing that was found within the gates. And being in the gates is the picture of arrival. Do you remember what it was like when you came back into the gathering from COVID, from your living rooms, that's a lot like what is expressed here. We're here, looking around, everybody. We're here, and we're here before God. We're here in the gates once again. And so, being in the gates is a picture of arrival. It's the realization that they have departed their homes, they they've left their lives behind, and really the world. And have arrived in a place where they will experience the blessing of God's presence. And they'll they'll experience the blessing of God's peace and unity. When they gather themselves, they have left their homes. It's an intentional act. It is an intentional act of the mind. It's an intentional act of the heart. To set ourselves apart from everything else in the world. So that we could be in the midst of God's covenant people and in the presence of God. The people were given decrees, they were commanded to give thanks to the Lord. Notice in verse number four, they were commanded to praise and thank God. Remember that in the temple there was more than what happens, there's more than thanksgiving and praise that happens in the temple. Think about what takes place in the temple. Sometimes the family were bringing lambs for the sacrifice or a dove. And they were trusting in the altar of incense inside the temple to continue to to ascend prayers of the nation. They would see the priest and his washing of his hands and the cleansing and the rituals and the anointings. They would see all these things, but in all these things, notice that this worshiper, when they come to the temple, they just say there's two things that they're looking forward to, to being a part of. And by the way, neither one is explicitly related to even the forgiveness of sins. At least in mentioning it, just as praise and thanksgiving. Nothing about sacrifice. There are sacrifices for repentance and there was other, other activities going on in the supplication and the offering of incense. But David here, the psalmist, only gives two parts of the description here for worship. The worship, the two parts, is this. List. Listen to this. As was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. The testimony of Israel. They were going to give the testimony of what God had done among them and the giving of thanks unto the Lord. Give thanks to the name of the Lord. So what was it that was at the center of the temple? It wasn't something that they brought and it wasn't something the priest was going to do. What was so attractive about the temple? What was at the center of their attention? It was the testimony of Israel. God himself It wasn't what they were going to do for God. It wasn't how they were going to serve him. And it wasn't the sacrifice that they were going to bring. It was let me be where God is. The testimony of Israel resides here in the temple. Jehovah Nisi, he's the banner. He's the covenant God. He is our, our everything. You see, when they come to the temple, they're coming not to impress God with their service and not to impress God with their sacrifice, but as their heart beats in them as they ascend Mount Zion, they want to see God. Is that why you came to the gathering today? I know all of us couldn't say with full heartedness that's what we were anticipating. But as God purifies and God works in us, he desires to to shape us into a people who we come together, yes, to see the tribes, yes, to see the brothers and sisters, and yes, to be changed, but not as a means to an end. When God's people come together, they gather before God. And I think that's what David's saying here. It's not in the sacrifices I bring. And it's not in the prayers that will ascend. It's not in the program of worship. I long to see God. And that's why I'm glad when they said, let us go unto the house of the Lord, because I need to see God. One person said worship gives you a workable structure for life. And so the testimony is that the 12 tribes, likely hundreds of thousands of people, ascend Jerusalem and they see each other and they recognize the greatness of God is in working out his glory in the lives of one another. And his greatness is seen in multiplied graces and stories of each other's lives. And this is one reason why I know Rob loves this, and Nathan and Ben and others. As, as we shepherd people of God, we see God's story of grace. And we know some of your stories, and it just m- helps us magnify God all, all the more. And as we gather as a people, we, we know the stories of one another. As we draw close to one another. And as we minister to one another and wash each other's feet, we recognize God is great. As we recognize just how broken each one of us is. And so the testimony of God in their lives ignites their thankfulness. They are abundantly thankful. They have rediscovered that God is their center of joy. And this is what it's like to worship God and to worship Him with His people. It isn't that you're first discovering all of who God is for the first time. But worship in the routine, in the discipline of our lives as as a people who come and assemble as Israel did three times a year at least, so too we as believers tend to assemble one time a week on the Lord's Day on Sunday. We're rediscovering God in a sense of regrounding ourselves in the right paths of God and his word. After living six days apart from the great gathering, six days apart from the testimony of the greater body of Christ, the church comes together, and looking at one another and bearing testimony of God, we erupt into joyful thanksgiving. <coughs> and sometimes that eruption is noisy. And can I say this, although it's a paradox, sometimes that eruption is quiet. It's meditative, it's solemn, even mournful. Sometimes, and altogether, our worship of God can be an undoing and a redoing of our experience in the faith. But thirdly, I know it's also in this passage a third truth, and that is the Lord is the peace of his people. The Lord is the peace of his people. And I want you to look down with me, please, to... Um, to verse number six. And the psalmist says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And this is our prayer, too, that God would bring peace into Israel. But this isn't quite far enough when you think that way. So let's explore. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. There is a word play. It's called a synecdoche. That's what I'm told. And there's Hebrew word, three Hebrew words, shalom, shalva, and shalom. Shalem, actually. And it's meant to be, as the sound of it is meant to draw your attention, draw our attention to something different that's going on. Shalom, shalva, and Shalem, peace and prosperity. I pray for peace within your walls and security within your towers. He's praying for peace and prosperity in the city of peace. And it's a subtle artistic skill that the, the writer of Psalms is using it's meant to be a play on words, and the sound of the words is supposed to surprise and awaken us as readers and worshipers to another level and reality of the truth being conveyed. It's more than just bold print type like on, on our books, and it's more than emojis, although it could, it could be an emoji right here. It's more than that. It's a powerful use of sound and imagery meant to call the mind to a deeper thinking on this subject subject. And he's calling for the brothers in Christ to pray for God to do his supreme work in one another's another's lives. John Stoughton said, we have a venture in every ship of prayer that maketh a voyage for heaven if our hearts be willing to pray for the church. And if not, we have no share in it. We learn from this, and we learn from the scriptures, that we cannot say that we love the church and we do not pray for her. Just like the 12 tribes could not say that they loved the peace of Jerusalem and yet did not seek God for it. It's not just an abstract sense of peace. The psalmist is saying to pray for the peace of the people. Turn with me in your, your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12 and verse number 18. The writer of Hebrews Pictures what it was like for Israel to gather around the great Mount Sinai as God covenanted with his people. And he says it's in a far different way for us who through Christ now are able to approach God in awesome reverence and worship. And he makes a contrast in Hebrews 12, verse 18, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, And the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given to them. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come. This is written to you and I, believer. But you have come to Mount Zion for if they did not escape when they refused him who were warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful For receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. But notice that the gathering of God's people comes with an admonition of right thinking and right relationship to one another. So keep looking in this. The two are not separate. Listen, the gathering of God's people to worship Him and their right thinking and right relationship to one another are not inseparable. The two are not separate. A right relationship with God transmit into a right relationship with others. So the writer of Hebrews continues in Hebrews 13, not with a separate thought. While your Bible has a, has a you know, chapter division, it's a continuation of thought. But let brotherly love continue. You've come to the mountain, and you approach knowing his almightiness, And you do not need to tremble because there is one who has fulfilled the law on your behalf. But look around you at the foot of the mountain and let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. at the foot of the mountain, in the courts of the temple, as the church gathered. Let the testimony of the Lord invade your heart that it changes the way you treat your brother. So as the tribes ascend and then participate in three feasts in, in the year, there's a great atmosphere, a swelling atmosphere. They also then will leave Jerusalem. And we could say from, from what's shown to us this last part of Psalm 122 is sort of a prayer of descent. As we leave the worship of God and leave as 12 tribes and go our separate way, may peace be unto you. And so they descend. And they descend with a renewed faith and vigor in serving the Lord. While corporate worship is large and the gathering is abundant with great encouragement, it's meant to help in understanding and believing just how deeply we need God in the now of Monday. In the now of Tuesday, in the now of Thursday night it 's a catalyst for a closer walk with the lord it 's a resetting of the spirit of peace that can be available when away from the temple with god 's people and you remember that biblical peace is godlike it 's god given peace it 's infinitely more than a feeling it 's a word that can summarize the wholeness of our salvation. It's a word that God uses to define the permeating power of his grace in all of our lives, in every area of our life. It's perhaps the biggest word in the Bible because it involves all of you and it involves all of God and all of his goodness. And so peace is a condition of the heart more than it is a frame of mind. Some of you came today and in heart you're at peace with God but in mind you're entangled. You're distracted. You're discouraged. Peace is a condition of a heart more than it is a frame of mind. It is not merely the fleeting experience of emotions although they can be at peace. It's a fixed point, a security, a relaxing, a relinquishing of everything to God's care because He's the Lord of peace. And it's not just your peace, but it's a shared peace. And so we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for your peace. You pray for my peace. During the Passion Week, when Christ entered Jerusalem, he wept. Not like these 12 tribes ascending Jerusalem right now. We don't hear them weeping. But when Christ ascended Jerusalem for the feast, he wept. And instead of ascending the temple with the psalm of ascent, which, by the way, he may have done, but the gospel writers tell us that the heart of our Savior Jesus Christ heaved in broken fervor for his people who had had the appearance of gathering but did not bear the testimony of the Lord. That is, the tribes of Israel were ascending in Jerusalem when Jesus ascended in Jerusalem, but his heart heaved and his heart was broken for a people who were gathering, but not gathering unto the Lord, but gathering for themselves. And there were people that did not bear the testimony of the Lord. And seven woes and temple cleansing and a withered fig tree and blood sweat in the garden will mark his ascension to the peak of redemption in in, in Jerusalem, the cross of Calvary. So Jesus entered into Jerusalem. Jesus entered in Jerusalem like the three truths that we see in Psalm 122. Jesus entered into Jerusalem as as the testimony of the Lord. Jesus entered Jerusalem as the temple, not made with hands. Jesus entered Jerusalem as the peace of God. He won it. He secured it. In his cross work, Christ became the song of God's people. Christ became Psalm 122. Aren't you glad when they said, let us come to the house of the Lord? So we come, we gather, we bring testimony, we worship, and we pursue peace with one another. Would you pray with me?